This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, a novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce those co-hosts. Anthony Appiah teaches philosophy at New York University. I'm glad you're here, Anthony. Very glad to be here, too. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Welcome, Kenji. It's always a pleasure, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about dangerous drivers, racism that works in your favor, and the moral obligation to pay your bills. Okay, so here's our first question. Dear ethicists, during a torrential downpour in the afternoon, my son and I were driving behind a dangerous driver. This driver swerved over the median and roadside line several times, very carelessly, Not just a little bit. It was clear for the several miles we were driving behind this person that he or she was distracted and I suspect it was a teenager looking at the type of car. Before the driver turned off the road, I had my son take a photo. I then posted the photo to a local forum on social media. It stated this driver was dangerous and I posted the plate number. My goal was to alert others and to hopefully alert a parent that their teen was driving recklessly. A controversy erupted, split evenly with those for and against. Police won't do anything unless they see it happening, so I did not phone them. I could never live with myself if that driver went on to cause an accident and I did nothing, was my action justified? Sincerely, name withheld. I don't think I share the assumption here that the police won't do anything. I mean, there's two of you in the car, so it's perfectly safe for one of you to call 911. If somebody's really dangerous, it seems to me... Uh, you should draw the attention of the police immediately to the fact that they're really dangerous. And um, I think that would be fine. Uh, if, Of course, uh, the police get lots of calls and they have to engage in, in triage. They have to decide which ones to answer, so they might not do anything about it. But I think you should at least give them the opportunity. And I should say that I think you should give them the opportunity only if it's serious. Uh, I do not think we want to live in a world in which people are constantly calling the cops because uh, people are annoying them by driving at 33 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour speed zone and so on. <laughs> so let's let's uh, let's reserve this for people. But this guy does sound like he was really dangerous. So I say call the cops. I think calling the cops makes sense. I, I'm not sure if posting it on social media in your area is going to help, although I understand the wish to alert people. And I, my own thought was, if you, if you were very narrow about just posting the facts and not jumping to conclusions, either that it was a teenager or that this was a pattern, because those are the two things that, that you don't know, maybe you could just say, on your local neighborhood listserv, I saw this car being driven in this way, and these things happened, and I was concerned about the driver's safety and that of other drivers. And at least then you haven't made any accusations. Yeah, I, I agree with Amy that you could ethically have posted the facts without going further than strictly the facts. 
In fact, if you do go further, you do run the very, very slim chance, but the chance nonetheless uh, of su- being sued for defamation or for libel. So please be careful. Uh, just the facts, please. <laughs> uh, but that's also an ethical notion, right? Just as Amy was saying, what you saw is what you saw. You have no broader understanding of the context of so this could have been a one-time thing. There are uh, websites that do create these focal points. So platewire.com is a website (laughs) where you can actually post uh, such instances with license plates. I have to admit, I have mixed feelings about this kind of what has been called digilanteism, right? Uh, Vigilanteism through digital media. But, you know, I I think one of the ways to mitigate that is to say you could also post positive uh, examples of driving to that site as well. So... We all know that the Internet is a place for uh, negative commentary to reign supreme. But one of the things that could actually be encouraging is to um, to do the opposite as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, I guess, of, of uh, using social media in this way. One reason is that I think that the um, that there's no sort of guarantee that there's any uh, filtering going on about which of the complaints people are going to make are serious and which aren't, and there's no uniformity of judgment. So it's very, it would be very hard to make much, to interpret a lot of a lot of the sort of commentary that you get on these things. And the result is going, therefore, to be, I think, um, unfair. And we have to remember that one of the things that happens on the web is that once you are accused of something of this sort, um, it can be, on the one hand, nothing can happen to you, and on the other hand, absurdly extensive abuse yeah. can occur to you and there's no you have no control when you report on a website like this uh, about what's going to happen and what's going to happen is quite likely i think to be inappropriately little or inappropriately much so i don't think i guess what i feel is if you do put things on the web in this way you're really it's not clear to me that you're doing something that you have control of in the way that you would do if you could say to the cops, look, this is exactly what happened, and I think he's, this person is dangerous, and um, you should uh, look into it. But um, I guess it's permissible to report, if you're asking the ethical question, is it permissible to say factually that something like this happened? I can't see that that's uh, ethically impermissible. I just worry that uh, it isn't. we don't want to live in a world where uh, vast quantities of uh, accusations of this sort are circulating around, not least because if they were, we wouldn't know what to do with them. There's too many of them. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember my own plate number. So remembering a lot of other people's plate numbers is going to be difficult. Well, I know. When you say we don't want to live in that world, I feel like we do live in that world. And um, and it would be but great uncomfortably. if we could, <laughs> yeah. but uncomfortably and 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 wishing to rein it in. But you guys live in that world. I I must say I I don't go to the sort of websites where this sort of thing is put. <laughs> if people started posting this on my Facebook page, I would unfriend them. Right. Well, you're you're. We know that you're you're purer of heart than either of us, Anthony. That's uh, right. Savasandir, right? And here uh, we are trolling about. <laughs> Uh, Amy and I are, are are living in the gutter here, uh, but just to just to, in a more serious note, just to push you on some of those intuitions that you raised, uh, Anthony, I, I you know probably did a little bit more trawling than I I should have on this because I was actually really fascinated by this uh, question. But one thought would be, does it make it better? if you are willing to post your own plate, right? So if the issue is accountability, 
because on Platewire, one of the things that was interesting, this is an article way back in 2007, so it may not uh, still be right. But in, there's a 2007 article that said there were many more people who were ponying up and saying, here's my plate, tell me how I'm doing. Uh, so I can criticize others because and only because I am willing to pony up my own driving for um, for evaluation. So that's one mitigation tactic. And then the other one is there's another site, sorry guys, called Dashcam, uh, where you insert a camera on your dashboard. So this ameliorates the, you don't need a second person in the car to be doing this. It's just on constantly, so it's just automatic. And it also provides a much more objective stream of time video of uh, just how other people are driving. And in fact, accident reports have been filed that include these videos because you get a very clear idea of who did what. And it's actually much more objective than an eyewitness account, in my view. You know, So, so I guess if the question is accountability, does the first question help? Or does the first mitigation tactic help? If the question is objectivity, right, you know, is, are these just subjective things or does the second one help? So. Yeah, I think, I think they both do. They're slightly different from what I imagine is being aimed for here in many cases, which is just to shame the, <laughs> the offender. Which, And I, I think the point about, I guess that's the part of it that I don't think is likely to be very effective, uh, in, uh, in part because shame works best uh, in, a, in a useful way uh, within social groups. And the web is a world of Strangers, by and large, but um, but I don't think I, I think it would be wonderful if more of us uh, had. Uh, I, I'm glad the police are in, introducing more cam- cameras in which they record their own activity. I think that this sort of activity, public activity on the highways, is a sort of thing where nobody has a reasonable expectation of privacy, and so it's perfect, you should be perfectly free to record what they're doing. And it would be useful, as you say, for lots of purposes, including uh, understanding what's happened in accidents, if there were more records of this kind. So I think putting it up there. And for that matter, putting your own plate up there are both. Uh, I think that th- particularly the latter is is a is a very interesting idea because it's it's a way of helping you um, uh, constrain your own behavior in in positive ways. Uh, we don't want to be uh, seen to be <laughs> driving badly. We don't want people in our circle to know that we drive badly, and so it's good to to we can we're helping ourselves behave better uh, if we put ourselves under that kind of scrutiny. So yeah, I think those two things are are fine. I think that those two things are fine, but I have to confess that when Kenji said, and then you post your own license plate, I gasped. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, people post their own license plates and then are subject to, um, I, I think the dash cam is actually great because it, it just seems you know pretty objective and that's probably quite useful to people. Um, the idea of, of entering... A website where people just have running commentary on each other's driving um, just um, may, makes me feel, you know, not only with Antony, we don't want to live in that world, but just a sort of an enormous wish to sort of dial something back. But to return to the question, I think we have convergence around so long as you just report the facts, it is perfectly ethical for the letter writer to post their reactions. Is that? Yep. I think that's true. And I think we also think that it's a good idea that there are more objective ways of recording the facts than there used to be. All right, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicist, in the past month, I found I had to move to a new city for work and thus break my lease at the apartment I am renting, which technically runs until November. My contract has no sublet clause, which means I would have to pay three extra months of rent. 
I called my landlord to see if there was leeway on this rule, and she came up with a compromise that I would only have to pay half the remaining rent. But I had to promise not to tell any of my roommates about this arrangement so that they wouldn't try to sublet in the future. She told me the only reason she allowed me to do this was because people from our minority racial group had to look out for each other and then also asked a series of racially tinged and prying questions about my roommates. I told her I'd get back to her about the deal. Now I have a ton of ethical dilemmas about this. Can I accept the deal? Do I have an obligation to tell my roommates about my landlord's racism or housing authority? I know this behavior is illegal. For context, I am a young professional who is by no means well off, but I would also not be completely broke if I was forced to eat the three months of rent. Thanks for your advice. Sincerely, name withheld. You do have a ton of ethical dilemmas about this. I don't think you can accept the deal ethically. I do think you have an obligation to tell your roommates about your landlord's racism. Um, I have talked to some people at uh, housing authorities, and they say that the state handles state and federal housing, that they will not be interested in your anecdotal evidence that your landlord expressed to you what I would describe as a common but unfortunate preference for her own group. And I'm glad you're trying to weigh these different costs and benefits. I would say her offer is you only have to pay half and don't tell the NPLU, not people like us, about this deal. And you can take the deal and tell your roommates. And you cannot take the deal and tell your roommates, which seems to me to be the right thing to do. So I don't think you can ethically accept this deal. A lot of social science has taught us that you know, a significant part of racism has to do with giving benefits to those like ourselves rather than actively harming those who are unlike ourselves. And I think that this subtle favoritism, as Amy, you were saying, rarely rises to the level of illegality. But that's all the more reason to address it at the ethical level, at the infinite and infinitesimal ways in which it expresses itself. In terms of who to tell, I would need to know more about the exact nature of the comments that were made. But perhaps the most constructive response is a kind of noisy exit, which is to tell the landlord that while you appreciate her attempt to reach a compromise, you can't accept the deal for the reasons that she stated. Because she may and be totally add, unaware that what she's she doing might. is unethical or potentially illegal. And I want to add one more thing to the noisy exit, which I, I love that idea, which is that she can also tell, you can also tell your landlord that you find your roommates to be fine and upstanding people and you hope that she treats them as kindly as she has treated you, which would be just, I know, a little bit more um, than just telling the roommates, hey, our landlord is racist. It might be also good to provide a little pushback for the landlord not just in terms of I can't take this deal because it's unethical, but also these are really good people and I know them really well. Yeah, I, I agree with you about not taking the deal, but I think I have a different view about what, what's, what's wrong in this situation. So you can't take the deal because you can't take a deal. Uh, I mean, these are your roommates. They're not your best friends, maybe, but they're people you live with. They're people with whom you have a relationship. You can't take a deal not to tell them something relevant to your collective situation. That's just out of the question, it seems to me. It would be a profound breach of, of your relationship with them. It would be a betrayal of that. So you, ca you can't take the deal because it requires you to betray them. Um, uh, I don't know what I feel, on the other hand, about the badness of what this person is proposing to you. 
I think, uh, provided you treat people of all kinds, uh, if you give everybody of every kind their due, what they're owed, then you're free to have special favoritism for people for all kinds of reasons. After all, nobody thinks it's wrong to favor your own family in context where you don't have a duty of um, impartiality. And I don't think a, a landlord is a, is a private person who's put this place up for rent. Uh, she's, still a, she's still a private person. Uh, she would have been free to uh, send you your check back, surely. And so she's free to, get to, to do you special favors and to do them uh, on the grounds that she favors people uh, of her own minority kind. I think it's important here to distinguish between cases where uh, where um, giving a privilege to someone adds up is part of what uh, is, is contributing to the continuing uh, um, uh, negative experience of minorities where, so I would think that if, 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 if you were both uh, white, uh, there would be something very troubling uh, about this. But I think in the context of a society in which there are racial minorities who are characteristically exposed to negative experiences and who have the burden of living in a society that's racist, I don't think it's unreasonable for people of those groups to treat each other with a special care and attention, provided they don't deny uh, anybody else, what's their due? So I think um, uh, in context, of, this is what philosophers call in our, one of our you know, expensive words, uh, supererogatory context, context where you're doing something nice for someone that uh, you don't have to do, I think you're free to, in, in general, to do that for people of your own special kind, especially if you're members of a minority group that's suffering in the society. It's complicated, as I say, by the fact that if you're not a member of a group that's um, a minority in that way, uh, you will be simply be adding to the to the whole bad side of the negative uh, experience of, of minorities. So I, I think it's a bad idea on the whole for members of majority groups to think in this way. But I don't see that it's particularly bad provided this person treats the rest of your colleagues uh, as she ought to uh, if she wants to treat you better. Yeah, I see a, a through line. I think in your in your thinking, uh, Anthony, because I, I think that you often think about in very deep and, and wonderful ways about the our communities, right, and what we owe to people and how sort of partiality is permissible, say, in families and things like that. But I, I guess I want to push you on it and ask Amy's opinion for this as well, because as I understand it, if this individual didn't have roommates then it would be completely fine to take the deal. That's, I take it to be your position. But let me think about it this way. You know, if an Asian person landlord says to me as an Asian American, I'm going to give you this deal, uh, but only because you're Asian and I have no roommates, do I really get to take that deal? Because it strikes me that what are other people owed? You know, these I might not have roommates, but I have neighbors, right? There, I know that there are other people in this pool who are not being offered this deal. So I, I guess one question is what degree of propinquity of relationship is, is required to trigger this obligation of having somebody else's back, right? Well, you know, I, I agree that that is, that is a relevant question. And I, and I, I think it's a bit more complicated than I said in, in my first simplifying remarks, because I do think that, that, that there's a complicated set of issues to be balanced here. But look, here's a practice in our society, which I don't think is, uh, is a bad practice. Uh, African-Americans very often greet each other on the street, even if they've never met before, especially if they're meeting in places where there are lots of people who aren't African-Americans. 
Um, that's that's a way of responding in a super derogatory way. It's it's uh, nobody's under an obligation to smile at everybody, so you're free. To, but you're free to smile at people, and you're free to pick your reasons for smiling at people. So it seems to me, um, sneering at strangers who are not black that's not permissible because you don't you owe uh, you owe respect to to everybody you meet. Uh, what you don't owe is a smile, and if you give a smile to some people and not others, some of us give smiles to people with children, and not to and we don't give random smiles to people, uh, but people with children whom we don't know, um, and so on. So I think, um, now, I agree that we're now in a context where this is a big deal. Half the rent is a lot of money, and you're offering it to someone in context where you have yourself said, the landlord has said, that she wouldn't offer it to anybody except a person of that group. But she's free to, it seems to me, she's free not to spend and uh, to, to decide that she wants to favor this person. I don't know. We don't know anything about their relationship. It doesn't sound as though they like, like they have much of a relationship since um, uh, since uh, this doesn't sound like it was a very good conversation uh, that raised this problem. So I think it's at least possible, however, that we should think that there's a difference between members of a dominant majority group that is has a history and a continuing practice of doing things that set back the interests of a minority group. There's a difference between those people continuing to favor their own group and people of a minority group that continues to be uh, disadvantaged doing each other favors. And what if the roommates are members of yet another racial minority group? Does that change the position here? But to, in fairness to Anthony, what, I mean, the roommate thing is the deal breaker for him from from the beginning. Right. I understand that yeah. you that you can't not tell them because that's a betrayal of your roommates, which yeah, I absolutely right. agree. Yeah. Um, so, so for example, so it seems to me, for just to give an instance here of, of the of the general issue. Uh, the relationship you have with your roommates is one that generates obligations that are not dependent upon whether you do or don't share ethnicity with them. These, there's a different kind of generated relationship. And in that relationship, you owe each other uh, this kind of trust. And you certainly can't breach it in order to uh, achieve solidarity with some other person who happens to be of your group. So that's why I think you can't, you can't not tell them. But uh, as I say, I, I think it's at least not clear to me. We don't know enough about all the relationships here, but it's at least not clear to me that it wouldn't be free. Suppose that suppose this person is black. This is an older black woman. Maybe they see each other often, um, and she's just doing a favor uh, to this person. And she says, "I'm not going. I would. I'm doing this favor to you because you're another black person." In our society, I don't think of that as a particular uh, as something that raises ethical problems. In this particular kind of case, there are contexts in which it does, and that's because in other contexts you have a duty of impartiality. But I don't think a landlord, a private landlord, has a duty of impartiality. See, I think that's where we differ. Yeah, so I, I think yeah. that's I think the smiling thing is a great, great analogy because you're right that when I enter a public space, I feel I don't feel like I have any right uh, for anyone of my ethnicity or otherwise to smile upon me. So I have no right to that smile. That's completely supererogatory. But when I enter into a housing market, even a private housing market, I do feel like I have an ethical, at least, you know, not a legal, but an ethical, you know, obligation to be treated fairly regardless of my race. But, that, that, but now the issue is, is what's fair. And all I'm saying is that it seems to me that in a private housing contract. Uh, if I like you, it's fair for me to uh, to say I'm not going to hold you to the contract. Uh, and it's fair for me to do so even though I wouldn't in general uh, uh, 
extend that courtesy to people. And I think it's fair enough in our society, given the significance of ethno-racial identities in our society, especially for minorities, I think it is okay uh, to... And I realize that many people will object because they'll they'll mm-hmm. think that they'll think that I'm uh, urging uh, an asymmetry here between the situation of majorities and minorities, and in our society, that's an unpopular view. Unfortunately, I think it's ethically correct. But again, we all agree that you can't take the deal. Yes, absolutely. You can't take the deal, and, um, and you can't betray your roommates. No. Um, I, think, I think we do agree on that. I think this question of asymmetry... And the question of partiality, I suspect, will continue to come up in our questions because they do really sort of push some of the ethical responses. Because I found myself, you know, focusing on the landlord asking a series of racially tinged and prying questions about my roommates, which made me feel that what was being offered was not just the partiality that you talk about, Antony, but actually also something um, more actively negative towards yeah. the roommates. And I completely agree that if that's true, that's impermissible. On to our last question. Dear ethicists, is it okay to default on a mortgage loan to maximize financial benefit? A recent New York Times article presents an argument for defaulting on student debt. Others have done so in protest for not getting a sufficiently valuable education, most famously Corinthian college students. Some have argued that refusing to pay government-backed loans violates a social contract we have with fellow citizens because we are all forced to pay for the debtor's bad debt in the form of higher taxes. What about home loans? Setting aside the obvious examples where somebody stops paying a mortgage due to a family illness or other emergency, is it okay to stop paying your mortgage simply because you've calculated that it is not worth it to put your money into a home that was purchased during a housing bubble and that is now worth less than what you owe? It's tempting to think of it as simply a business decision. You default and the lender gets the house. Case closed. UCLA Law Review has an article saying it's okay. Businesses go out of business all the time, and their creditors get the proceeds of the auctioned-off assets. Others consider it a moral obligation to pay debts for which you've signed up. I've heard and read arguments on both sides and honestly don't know which is right. Can you help? Rolando, Oak Park, Illinois. Well, Rolando, you have fastened on a classic debate and contract law theory about whether contracts have an independent moral dimension. So if they do have an independent moral dimension, then it's unethical to breach a contract if you can avoid doing so because you've invited a confidence that you're now voluntarily abusing. But if they don't have a moral dimension, that's when we get into the territory of the so-called efficient breach theory which says that all that matters here is net social welfare. So if the cost of fulfilling the contract exceeds the benefits to all the other parties, i.e. the breach yields a net social benefit, then you should go ahead and breach, and that would be great. So there have been reams and reams and articles and articles on scholarship taking up both sides of this issue, and I could hear them sort of fluttering around the room. And I should also (laughs) say that sort of fools rush in where angels fear to tread because I haven't thought about contracts since first year of law school. But as I understand it, this is an ongoing debate that rages on. I guess the only thing that I would say applying that dilemma to this particular context is that even under the efficient breach hypothesis, there are broader social costs of breach beyond the parties themselves, i.e. you and the bank, such as the diminution of value of other houses in the neighborhood that your foreclosure could bring 
or a more general decline in the confidence of contracts being fulfilled that would make it harder for me and Antony or me and Amy or me and you to you know, engage into a contract or to have a faith that that will be honored. So my intuition is that even without acknowledging that contracts have an independent moral dimension, that strategic default is unethical, unless you can demonstrate that these collateral costs can be mitigated as well in your situation. I guess I, it's funny, I, I responded to this uh, in, in a way, I responded to this relatively strongly. That is, it seems to me that uh, a contract is a legal document, but from an ethical point of view, you're also, as it were, giving your word to somebody. You're putting, I would say, putting your honor on the line. You're, you're, uh, and uh, I think we rightly uh, disapprove of, of, of bankers when they take advantage of features of contracts which are legally permissible but ethically dubious, as they certainly did in the, in the context that has now led us with so many subprime mortgages uh, under the water. So um, I think it's right to distinguish between what is legally permissible to do or legally possible to do, and it's certainly legally possible to, uh, I mean, people in Florida mail the keys to the bank and say, here, have it. I, I, I don't want it anymore. It's certainly legally possible because the, the bank has a resort. That's what a mortgage is. It gives them the right to, to uh, recover what they can by selling it um, and taking it away from you. But I think that that's, it's very important that the fact that something's in the contract, that is the fact that it says in the contract what will happen if you don't pay, doesn't mean that you didn't breach the contract when you cease to pay. Uh, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's analogous to um, when I make a promise to you. Uh, part of the background of promising is that I, if I breach, I owe you an apology. But the contract doesn't say the, the promise doesn't say I'll do something for you. But uh, part of the promise is that I'll uh, give you an apology instead if it, if it suits me. Um, you should try to keep your promises. The apology is what you owe if you fail. Uh, thinking of as it were, strategic breaches of promises strike me as, 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 a, as a bad idea. And I think that um, my own view is that, is that we don't enter the economic world, even in our relationship with institutions like banks, we don't enter that world um, simply as um, you know, self, self-interested maximizers of, of our financial interests. We enter them as people with, with uh, moral senses and with, uh, with honor and, and, and things like that. And that simply thinking of the contract here as something, well, the, the terms for breach are set out in it, so I'm just going to take advantage of them, misses, on the, misses out on all of that. And, and so the fact that they get the property if you don't pay the bill doesn't actually wipe the moral slate clean. It, it wipes the legal slate clean. Um, and and uh, by the way, if you do do that, uh, you will have a record as someone who's done this and you'll find it very hard to get loans of another sort for a while. So there will be uh, negative costs for you in that world of the economy. But there'll be a negative moral cost, I think, which is that you haven't, you, you've, you've, you haven't tried to do the best to keep your word. And just to locate us in the literature, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that the man who wrote the book on honor, which is Antony here, uh, would take that <laughs> side of the, uh, uh, the debate because uh, probably the most canonical work on this is Charles Freed, a professor up at Harvard Law School's uh, book, uh, Contract as Promise. Uh, and he, so he says contracts are legal, but they are situated within a broader moral universe of things called promises, and there's a moral obligation to fulfill your, your promises. So the very idea that 
you would strategically decide not to keep a promise, right? Uh, seems odd to us morally, and I think a lot of it has to do with honor, right, and the honor mm-hmm. that attaches to promises. Mm-hmm. So I would well, I think it, situate you in the literature in that way. Sorry, I think Amy, it go does ahead. seem no, no. I think it does seem odd to us, but I think this is one of those moments where people will often raise the conflict between either common sense or what is often done, or could you just call it, as he says, a simply a business decision and the moral obligation and the ethical position. And often, you know, common sense and um, basic decency will lead you to the ethical decision, but not always. And you can really see the conflict in this question. You know, on one hand, as you say, people in Florida send in their keys to the bank, and there's a part of me that goes, and I don't blame them. You know, to find yourself in this terrible situation with your subprime mortgage and your house having lost so much value and feeling that you um, misunderstood what was being offered or that you were lied to and misled, which was also the case, and does that release you? I th- from your moral obligation. Yeah, no, I think it's right. I don't think it does. No, but I do think it's right in those cases that we focus on the fact that in that the background of mutual obligation and concern and respect uh, that we we want to assume was absent. So these people, many of these people, entered into these subprime mortgages in uh, in, in a way that uh, uh, was already morally poisonous from the start. Right, and, and that's why I think we feel less bad about. At least I feel less bad about their 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 uh, just dumping the keys. It's because it's because the whole thing was poisonous all along, as it were. Yes, but if it was a regular deal and you just had, as it were, bad luck. Um, then I think um, you should at least, uh, you should care. You should care about your honor. You should care about keeping your promises. And the fact that the thing at the other end of the relationship here is not actually, you know, a particular person with whom you have some definite, I don't think that, I don't think that matters very much. And by the way, I don't like the idea of, you, uh, not, not your idea, Amy, but the but our questioner's idea, uh, uh, that... Um, that we should think of business decisions as decisions that don't have an ethical dimension. I want to live in a world in which people think business decisions have an ethical dimension. Well, that's, that's, which, that was the yeah. line that struck me, yeah. simply a business decision, as if those are completely separate from yeah. any kinds of other decisions that you have to make in the yeah. world. There's a wonderful business school, I think it's in Hamburg in Germany, which teaches a, has a, a master's in, in um, honorable business. And they and the the you you get a degree an MBA in honourable business practices and it's run by a very old hundreds year old uh, German business association of of people who call themselves honourable business people and they want business to be governed by uh, not just by by the letter of of contracts and so on not just by the the thing on paper but by a sense that. Um, People are in relationship with one another, that business is a matter of relationships between employers and employees, between uh, companies and their clients, uh, between uh, buyers and sellers. Exactly, actually, by the way, as Adam Smith thought of it, which is why he thought of um, the market as a moral institution, because in, in, a, in a classic, properly functioning market, the, both the buyer and the seller are better off at the end of the deal. I've got something I want, you've got something you want. That sense that this is uh, that our economic relationships are embedded in a world of of ethical interaction, moral interaction. I think that's a really important thing to hold on to, and to some extent, I think we've we've lost it, and that's why one of the reasons why I think we ended up with the subprime mortgage fiasco. I want us to talk at some future date more about that school in Hamburg. 
because that sounds like a, a, that sounds like a world that we would like to live in. And that's it for the ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom, and we'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.